Good morning. Uh, Let's turn together to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 14. Let me pray for us together. O Lord, we thank you for revealing to us uh, through your servant Moses the life of Abraham and what you promised Abraham, how you were with Abraham, how you blessed him. And that we, through Jesus Christ, are now sons and daughters of Abraham, that we belong to the people of God, that we have the faith of Abraham and will see the faithfulness of God as Abraham saw the faithfulness of God. So bless us, Lord, that we would be encouraged by what you were and are to Abraham and to his descendants spiritually. Thank you, Lord, that you've made us to be in Christ Uh, who is that promised seed of Abraham, that in him, in Christ, all the nations will be blessed. Thank you that belonging to Christ, we can be a part of that glorious mission that all the nations would be blessed in Christ. Bless us, Lord, to obey your mission joyfully, expectantly. In his name we pray. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open. We will be reading here in a minute. It's a big high school game toward the end of the season. And it's for the underdog Wildcats. What is the coach going to do to encourage them as they face this huge game? Is he going to show films of them losing in the past? And then finish the films and say, you know... You guys are just failures. You, you're losers and you're going to lose this Friday also. Or maybe he puts up demotivating posters. Nick Breedlove reminded me of those this week. Not by his personal life, just uh, talking to me about it. <clears throat> so, for instance, despair. It's always darkest before it goes pitch black. Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles, sometimes ends very, very badly. Another demotivator, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) Or perseverance, the courage to ignore the obvious wisdom of turning back. Like the guy says on his website, Motivational products don't work, but our demotivator products don't work even better. (laughs) So the coach is not going to do that. No. No, he's going to show them films like Rocky or Cinderella Man or Hoosiers or one of my favorites that that was nominated five times, Breaking Away of the poor boy across town who competed in the bike race with the college guys. Just a 
Tremendous movie. So maybe he's doing that. Or even better, he could show game films of the Wildcat team in the past when they won big games and they were the underdogs. That would be encouraging. And that last scenario is basically what Moses is doing by giving the people of Israel these stories about Abraham. These are like game films of what God did for their father, Abraham. You see, the people of Israel, there were slaves in Egypt. They were delivered out of Egypt and through many trials and a lot of sin and unbelief, they've finally been brought to the land of Canaan that's been promised to them. And they stand poised to go in there. But it is fearful. They're great walls, cities. They're powerful armies. There is no way on their own that they're going to win these battles. And so these stories of Moses are a vital way that he encourages the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan. Moses wants them to know what God has promised Abraham, how God was with Abraham, how God blessed Abraham so that they can believe that God will be with them and he will bless them as they embark on this momentous mission of the invasion of Canaan. And to remind you, we have a command. They had a command. We have a command. We've been commissioned, haven't we? You're familiar, Matthew 28. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. The paraphrase is, be involved in seeing lost people come to know Christ and in their coming to become a vital part of Christ's church and mission. That's what I commission you to be and do as my people. But we're scared. We're like Israel outside the land of Canaan. And worse, we're indifferent. We're comfortable too scared and indifferent and comfortable to befriend people and show hospitality and in the context of real friendships to share what we know and have experienced of Jesus Christ. We're too indifferent and scared to be involved in the ministry to people in need in this world. We need the same encouragement that Israel did. They're facing their mission. We're facing our mission We need to hear how God was with Abram, how God blessed Abram, and believe that God will bless us as well. So, as we come to this passage, just to remind you of its place in its proclamation to Israel as they're going to the land, and its place as a proclamation to us as we go into the world to fulfill God's commission. Now, there are so many names in this passage. I have practiced all week. Don't try this at home, okay? No, I'm sure I will mess it up. But. Now, it's important. This is it's a little confusing the way it's laid out. So let me just 
run through quickly, you'll find in the first three verses a basic introduction to the idea or, or the event that there was this battle in the valley of Sidim. Okay? Here are the participants in the battle. First verse is the kings of the east. The head guy is the one with the longest name, Kedar Omer. I'm going to call him Kadar, okay? Kadar and company. They're coming from the east. And then the Dead Sea kings are in the second verse. There are five of them. There are four from the east. They're going to have a battle in Sidim. That's what the first three verses tell us. But then it drops back to tell us how this came about. And as it tells us how it came about, it also tells us about how these eastern kings first came to dominate the whole area. You see, the problem was that Kedar, this this chief, had under his thumb these kings around the Dead Sea. So they paid him tribute for 12 years. He's under their thumb. He must have defeated them in battle. And now they have to pay him tribute for, for 12 years. 13th year, they don't pay tribute. 14th year, guess who shows up? Kadar. He wants his tribute. And he's going to take way more than the tribute. And while he comes this far east, he's going to expand his money base by conquering other kings and also building this snowball to finally attack the Dead Sea kings and cut them off from any help that they might have. So that's what happens. And we don't get back to the battle of Sidim until verse eight. So that's what's a little confusing. It's introduced in first three verses. Then all of this rolls out and we finally get to the battle in verse eight and following. So let's read. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ar-Eok, king of Elisar, Kedarla-Omer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings, those are the eastern kings, made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinav, king of Admah, Shem-Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all those joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, background. Twelve years they, that is the Dead Sea kings, had served Kedarla Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedarla Omer and the kings who were with him came, and here they started defeating other kings, defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh, Karataim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kedarla Omer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ar-Eok, king of Elisar. Four kings, that is verse 9, against five kings, verse 8. Now the valley of Sidim was full of Bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. 
So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So these first 12 uh, verses have point one, the disaster, the great disaster, especially for Abram that his nephew Lot has been plundered. Lot has been kidnapped. Now, this would speak to the Israelites many times in their existence as a nation for they were often plundered as well. And so they would look to see this history of what happened when Abram's uh, nephew was plundered and kidnapped. But I want to immediately jump to this truth for you and me to remind you that we live in a disaster area. I'm not talking about a hurricane in North Carolina or Puerto Rico or or New Orleans or Houston. Uh, I'm talking about humanity itself. We're told by John in his first letter that the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. Now, he's not talking about creation here, but he's talking about the world of men and women who don't know God. But it's a a startling statement. The whole it's like this picture. The whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. The evil one who only plans and does evil. And they are in his hand. They are captive. They are plundered. They are kidnapped. When humanity fell into sin through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we fell into the hands of the evil one. But it's worse for us because we human beings chose to walk away from God. We chose to change uniforms and join the darkness. Jesus is able to say to the Jewish leaders, and we can't separate ourselves as fellow sinners from the Jewish leaders. They're emblems of sin for all who oppose God and who oppose Christ. But he says of them who didn't believe in him, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Talk about being accosted to belong to another and to do the will of another. We don't see it that way. I think I'm just doing, I'm just living for myself and and ignoring God. But if that's the case, I'm definitely under the devil's thumb. I'm definitely paying tribute to him because I'm doing his will, which is to do my will and not God's, right? So Paul says of those who do not trust God, he says, hopefully God will grant them repentance. And listen how he describes how that repentance would take effect, that they would come to their senses And escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Escape, come to their senses. So there's this this idea of us like the Gadarene demoniac who was possessed of demons. It says 
There he was clothed and in his right mind. That's what happens for us spiritually. In a sense, when we escape our devotion against God, we come to our senses and we're restored to our true humanity, to belong to God, to love him, to see his beauty and to entrust ourselves to him and not be held captive to do his will. So my question for you and me, what do you do in a disaster area? Really? What do you do in a disaster area? Do you walk through it and just ignore it? Do you just play like it's not there? Is that what we're going to do? So let's begin by thinking, let's put ourselves in the hand of God to be used in any way that he chooses to help rescue people from their life without God. Right? Not a a happy prospect. Put yourself in the hands of God and say, use me in any way that you might to help rescue people from their life without God, from living apart from forgiveness and the mercy of God. Not to know and enjoy this God who made them. That's the real disaster in this world. Forget what theologians said. That's the only disaster is that people don't know this glorious God, that they don't know him in Christ. In this appalling disaster, how will God use us to bring others to know and love Jesus Christ? How will he use us to manifest the goodness of Jesus in all that we do and say in this world? So there's the disaster. The disaster, Lot has been kidnapped. It stands for the great disaster uh, in this world as well. But then there is the rescue, verses 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcolon of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went uh, went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's really at the northern part of uh, the land of Israel. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, even further north. Then he brought back all the possessions And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions. And we find out the women and the people. Up to that point, we didn't know that they had been taken as well. But he goes in this incredibly successful campaign. Defeats the enemy. Restores all of the people and possessions that were taken. Now, in this whole passage... The word king is a key word. It's used 28 times. King, 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 right? But, and and then of all the kings, the one that's the great king, it appears, is Kedarlaomer. 
because he heads this federation that cleans up in the the area around the Dead Sea and defeats uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, those other kings. But his victories are overshadowed then by Abram. Abram, even though he's not named a king, he doesn't have the title king, he is God's faithful warrior to do good in this world. In that sense, Abram is a greater king in this account. Not with the label of king, but with the nobility and the courage and the compassion and the action of a king. And so here we see that the promises of Abram to Abram are beginning to be fulfilled. You remember what God said back in chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Think what a blessing he is to Sodom and Gomorrah, rescuing their possessions and their people. What a blessing to Lot himself. Here, Abram has become basically a, 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 a powerful tribal leader on the international scene. Here's God beginning to make his name great as he promised. He's a force to be reckoned with. And those like Mamre and Eshkol and Aner, who are his uh, Amorite compatriots, they receive the blessing as well. They are blessed with Abram. As he says, those uh, whom uh, I will bless those who bless you, they share in the blessing of Abraham because of their association. You know, what's encouraging is that in chapter 12, Abram failed miserably, as we saw, as he went down to Egypt and he lied about his own wife, lied Ask her, please lie and tell him you're my sister, not my wife, so I won't be killed. But here we see him, and I love what Walkie says here. The man of faith is not shackled by his past failures, but he's saved from them. That's encouraging. You're not shackled by your past failures. You're saved from them to continue to be a bolder, more obedient, more trusting person in the hands of God. <clears throat> and you'll notice also this growth, or at least the manifestation of his character. Because in, in chapter 13, Abram and Lot are dividing the land between them. And Abram shows what a man of peace he is and a man of humility and generosity as he allows his nephew to choose what land he wants. But now, when his nephew Lot is plundered and kidnapped, Abraham becomes the man of war. He's humble and generous toward Lot in chapter 13. But now in chapter 14, he risks his life and his fortune to rescue him, even though it was partly due to Lot's foolish choice to live in Sodom. In spite of grave danger, this faithful uncle sets out to rescue Lot, bringing back all the, his goods and all the people that were taken. You think about how this would encourage the Israelites. See, they're facing the Canaanites and the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, 
group of kings, the Dead Sea Gang, I'll call them. The Dead Sea Gang were Canaanites. So they're going to face the Canaanites. And now they hear about Abram who defeated the king that defeated the Canaanites. See? And this is really encouraging as you're going into the land and say, hey, our father Abraham defeated the ones who defeated these people. So this is one way that God is showing him, revealing to him the power of God to, to, toward their own father, Abraham. And so they started singing this song. Father Abraham had many swords. Many swords had father Abraham. And I have one, and so do you. So let's just fight the Canaanites. Right hand, you know, and they're using it. I'm just... That's what they were singing in the locker room when they saw the film about Abraham, right? But you get the point. They were encouraged. They were encouraged to fight their battle because they saw what God had done through Abraham. And of course, what a picture of Christ is Abraham who risked his life for foolish lot. Christ rescues his people We were foolish and rebellious. You remember Paul's words. We touched on it in Sunday school in Romans 5 that Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul says that one might die for a good person, but God shows his love toward us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Abraham risked his life to rescue his nephew Lot. Christ gave up his life to die and suffer the wrath of God for those who had rebelled against him. We we subjected ourselves to our own plundering and kidnapping. It's almost that the kidnapping truck was going along and we jumped on it. Yes, plunder me. Yes, use me. Yes, take me away from this God that I hate. Never let me look back. And yet he came after us. Yet he came after us. So God gives Abram this victory over military enemies who plundered the promised land. And brothers and sisters, hear what God has to say to us as we think of this in terms of the New Testament. He will give us victory in reclaiming those who've been plundered by Christ. Do you think he won't? Do you think God is indifferent to their plight? And that he will not be with us and enable us to act on his behalf? God graciously brings us and calls us into his mission of rescuing those who've been plundered, who are blind and lost from God. I remind you of just bringing this in, though we've heard it uh, many times, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Here was God through the death of Christ providing a way for plundered people to be fully restored to God. And Paul says that God has entrusted first to him as an apostle, then to us as a church, this ministry and message of reconciliation. It's been entrusted to us. 
And Paul says, now God makes his appeal to people through us. That's how much we're instruments. That's how much we've been made made a part of his mission. God, through us, says, he says, then we say to those people, we implore you or we plead with you, be reconciled to God. We don't just go around saying that, but it's it's in connection with our action for uh, doing good to people in so many different ways. Uh, from IJM or, or uh, to Pregnancy Lifeline, or many, many other things, uh, Super Wednesdays, to actual things that we do in the community to uh, reverse poverty and injustice. All of these things are part of our expression of this glorious God whose message, central message in love is be reconciled to God. And brothers and sisters, it's not given to anyone else. It's given to us. It's a glorious privilege. Our warfare is far greater than what Abram faced. It's utterly beyond us. We can't change one person's heart, but we can be used as instruments of God's love to show the love of Christ and to speak of the love of Christ. And just think, there wouldn't have been a story here if Abram had just stayed put. No story. Abram just looked up and said, what does that have to do with me? That's not what God wants for us. He wants to enliven us with his joy for reaching others. To be energized with joy, eagerness to... Reach others. He doesn't want us to live in fear and indifference. And what he enabled Abram to do, he'll enable us to do on a whole different level. We may not be called kings or queens, but God will make us far greater kings and queens as we act in courageous love in this dark and lost world. That's what royalty does. It lays itself out for the sake of others. Then finally, you see this blessing. It's interesting in most accounts like this, the climax of the account would be the rescue, right? That's not the climax. Climax pushes through the rescue to the honor and praise of God. That's the end result here. So after his return from the defeat of Omer and the kings who were with him, King of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. 
So up to this point, we really haven't heard the name of God. The narrator has veiled that over. And then suddenly when Melchizedek proclaims this, the veil is taken back. And there's interesting that these two kings come out to meet him and there's a definite order. Sodom comes out, Melchizedek comes out and speaks, and then finally Sodom speaks. So Sodom, the king of Sodom is the outer banks, but the core is Melchizedek, the important relationship. And you can see the difference in them. The generosity of Melchizedek as he brings bread and wine. It's a royal meal. He, he lays out a royal banquet for Abram, celebrating him as God's warrior. But the king of Sodom dishonors him. He brings him nothing. And the first words from Melchizedek are, blessed be Abram. The first word from the king of Sodom is an ungrateful, rude demand. Gimme. Bless you. Give me. If Abram's the conqueror, he can dispose of the spoils of war however he wants. He has a right to everything. The kingdom of Sodom, uh, the king of Sodom is actually at his mercy, but he shows his ingratitude. He's working to make himself look generous, to say that he sacrificed and gave to Abram. And Abram has wisdom to avoid this. And it's in light of the blessing of Melchizedek that Abram refuses the compromise of the king of Sodom. The devil did this with Jesus, offering him the world if he would bow down to him. But Jesus refused. And so we can be willing to sacrifice our possessions and lives as we look to the promised blessing of God, refusing to compromise with the world in order to gain power or honor or wealth or protection because we hope in God and we hope in his great blessings. After all, we too serve, notice his name, the possessor of heaven and earth. The possessor of heaven and earth. And so the people in Hebrews were able to identify with those in prison. And because they identified with them, they had their goods plundered. And he says, you did that because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. Isn't that interesting? They go to this point. Here are people, Christians, who've been plundered and arrested, left for dead in a prison And then these Christians are willing to have themselves plundered in order to meet their need. That's what people do for one another and what people do for this broken world. So we now in this uh, particular place, we're represented by Abram and we're hearing and seeing the blessing of Melchizedek who ultimately is Christ himself picturing the final day. So brothers and sisters, we have this opportunity to rescue those who are lost in the very words of Proverbs chapter 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Just one of many statements that call us to a holistic ministry of both doing good and loving people. And in that context, to constantly call them, be reconciled to God. And we look to that final day where our great high priest will bless us 
and bring us into his eternal joy. Let us pray. O Lord, the people of this world are captives, heading for judgment. In the joy of Christ, make us like Abram, rescuing Lot. May we be people, Lord, who begin to ask this question, who begin to put ourselves in your hands, to say, Lord, who would you have me minister to? Who would you have me show the love of Christ to? We know they are there in our neighborhood. We work beside them. We go to school with them. Lord, they're all around us. Bless us. Bless us. That we'll see ourselves in a disaster area. And that we have been given the wonderful equipment of Jesus Christ. To show them, to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, bless us to this end that your name will be lifted up. Amen.